0: I believe that it is the artist's job to put their armor down first and then in doing so, in demonstrating that, doing it publicly, you put your armor away and you show your vulnerable self and everyone in the room goes, ah, man, I, I want to do that, you know? And it's, it's, it gives permission to everyone in the room to also be vulnerable, to let go of their inhibitions, to be the present, to maybe, whatever, like plant a garden or quit their job or climb a mountain, you know, whatever it is. You know, like the the fear is when you put your armor down is that you're going to get pierced by arrows and swords, and when you don't, it's really emboldening. It makes you feel invincible. You're like, oh my god, like that was like a drug. And uh, the more that you know, the more you're surrounded by art, the more you're surrounded by people who were willing to to go and be vulnerable first, and it it makes you feel like you can do it too.
1: Hello there. We're back and off to a great start with season two. Estee McLeod kicked us off with a terrific season opener a couple of weeks ago. If you haven't listened to that episode, go back and do that. She has given us all access to one of her art classes and that expires at the end of December. So don't miss it. You can find out everything you need about how to access that class just by listening to that episode. And uh, I don't know, can you hear it in my voice? I am bursting with excitement about today's episode. (laughs) You know, when I first realized that I was being called to do this show, I had no idea what I was doing. I still don't really know what I'm doing. (laughs) I just keep coming back. But one of the things I did to help myself navigate, you know, learning how to create and host a show was to buy a big, gorgeous hardcover notebook with line paper in it. And I wrote all my visions and ideas for what this show could be. And one of those things was a list of dream guests. And if you want to see a picture of that page in my notebook and find out who some of my other dream guests are, head over to KateShepherdCreative.com and search dream guests. And uh, you'll see my post there and you'll see the picture of my sketchbook and you can see a list of a bunch of my other guests who I know will one day come on the show. And I'd love it if you left a comment on that post telling me who you think would make a great guest on this show. And our guest today... Dan Mangan was at the top of that list back in those early days. He's a Canadian musician and somebody who I've been a fan of for nearly two decades. I knew that I wanted to bring him here and talk to him about his gorgeous music and creative process and how did he get to be such a humble, grounded rock star. And I'm so happy that over the summer, I was able to catch him before he heads off on tour in Europe. Before we head into the interview, there are a few other things I want to let you know. You might have heard last season a couple episodes I did that I was calling Genius Moments. They were extra little sort of mini episodes that happened in between my interview episodes. I often felt like I just had things to offer you myself that didn't really have a place within the context of one of our interviews. And they're not something I'm going to guarantee that I'm going to offer with any kind of scheduled regularity, but I will promise you that whenever I'm inspired or whenever I have something come up for me as I do my own work with, you know, uncovering my creative intelligence, whenever something comes up for me that I feel would be useful to share with you or helpful for you in your process of uncovering your own creative genius, that I will sit down and record one of these Genius Moments episodes for you. I did one the other day because I had some stuff come up for me that felt too good and too helpful and too useful not to share. And so I created a little 30-minute episode and it's Genius Moments number seven and the feedback I got from it was so moving. Honest to goodness, it brings me to tears because that's all I've ever really wanted to do with this work is to serve you and your creativity and all of every beautiful thing that's inside of you that wants to come up and out and into the world. That's all I've ever really wanted to do with this work, and so I want to share this message with you because it was particularly poignant for me. It comes from Jeannie, and it says, Oh, Kate Shepard, you have no idea what your podcasts mean to me. I'm chronologically 70, but creatively between four and eight. I have loved playing creatively all my life. As a professor, I was always in trouble with the administration because I taught creatively, loving my students and calling more about them into the institution. I have now listened to all of your podcasts. I'm a creative quilter but I've also painted, and suddenly you have me buying art supplies to paint on fabric. Where am I going? I don't know, but my energy is on fire. Thank you for all you do. Jeannie, thank you for taking the time to send me that message and for becoming a patron. That message actually came through my Patreon account, which is something you can do to support the show. You know, if you've been listening and this show is reaching into your heart and moving you in, in the way that it's moving people like Jeannie. And you're inspired and in a position to offer a little support to help me keep the lights on over here at Creative Genius, please head over to patreon.com slash creativegeniuspodcast and sign up to support this work. It really, really makes a big difference. And I want to make sure that you know about the Creative Genius family, which is our private Facebook group. It's a place for us to share and explore and celebrate all of the ups and downs of our creative journeys. And we'd love to have you there. And you can find out how to sign up over on katecheppardcreative.com And don't forget, it's S-H-E-P-H-E-R-D. And again, I have to tell you, leaving a review for the show and taking a moment to send a text or an email to a friend or a loved one with a link to the show, powerful ways you can help me to reach even more people with this show and change even more lives. So back to Dan. Dan's music comes from that deep, soulful Grounded place of magic where all truly great music and art comes from. In it, we find painfully, gorgeously said truths about the hopeful joys, the earnest, longing reaching of youth, and the impossible agonies and the incredulous, bittersweet defeat of a life fully lived. Lyrics that will make you close your eyes to savor the delicious weight of their truth. All sung to you by his commanding yet gentle voice that is all at once, approachable, gritty, knowing, uncertain, soothing, yearning, and familiar. You'll get to hear clips of one of my favorite songs of his, the one that makes me cry every single time I listen to it, and he tells a little story about how he wrote that song and what that song means to him. Dan's able to access this kind of magic for making his songs for a lot of reasons, which will become obvious to you as you hear him talk. But I will say this, I feel like we can all learn a lot from Dan. He's figured out how to, as he puts it, put his armor down first, which he feels is the responsibility of all artists. And that's something that allows him to share his gifts without pretense. And that has the beautiful side effect of inviting listeners and fans even closer to their own hearts. Dan Mangan is the most humble, non-rockstar star you may ever meet. And I'm thrilled to introduce you to him here today. Here's our conversation. I wanted to give you some context for the show. uh, It's called, the show is called Creative Genius. And uh, I started it because, I I mean, I'm an artist myself. I'm a painter and I'm a jeweler. And I've sold my work for a lifetime at Granville Island in the public market. In my time there, what I saw was that so many people have disconnected themselves from creativity. Mm. But I feel like, you know, people would walk up to my table and be like, oh, Art that's so amazing, and you're this magical being because you do this thing that nobody knows how to do. And I'm not that. I wish I could be that. Mm. And it made me. It took me a while to make me to till I realized that actually made me really sad because like to right like we're so disconnected from this thing that actually is in all of us. But then I then I realized that that it's that disconnect that's actually causing humanity to glitch. Like I really feel like we're glitching, Mm. and and it's that that's I think it all can all be traced back to that.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. The way part of
1: ourselves that's like, because because what is creativity? It's it's got instinct, it's intuition, it's inspiration. It's where your ideas come from. It's that thing that whispers lyrics to you and paintings to me. And it's like this. Thi- it's like it's the thing mm-hmm. that tells a tomato seed when to open and a seahorse <laughs> when to become. Like it's right, it's, right, that, yeah. it's running the universe. <clears throat> and we've just said no. Only some of us have it, and, and but the rest of us don't. So as soon as I saw that, I was like, oh God, I have to now dedicate. A good chunk of my life, so I've inadvertently beca- sort of have this like life mission now to help as many people as I can remember what is true about creativity, right? right? That's so, cool. yeah, I'm really, you know, when I get to talk to people like you, who, you know, from where I stand, you're stewarding that energy, that intelligence in such a mindful and clear and beautiful way. Mm. I feel like when we have these conversations with people like you, we can. Insp- inspire people to, to, to see that in themselves.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot to unpack there. A lot of things come to mind. Um, I don't know if you want to, um, if you know, I'm tempted to, I'm immediately, there's things I want to say, but I'm tempted to sort of encase them in the conversation rather than in now, if that makes sense. Um, if you're, if you're, if you're worried about like sort of, Sometimes you get on the phone with a journalist or something, and you have five minutes of amazing conversation. Just and then they're like, "Okay, let's get started." You're like, "You weren't recording that?" (laughs) You know? (laughs) No,
1: we're rolling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I just wanted to give you some context of the show because this isn't just like I want to talk to Dan Mangan about music. Like I want to Mm -hmm. talk to you about about that thing that's in you that you know actually is for a lot of people where the channel of it is quite big. I. can be kind of a hard thing to, to, to wrangle, right? And mm-hmm. I mean, I, I've been looking forward to having a chance to tell you this because I've been a big fan of your music for a long, long time. Oh, no way. Yeah. Like, do you remember those? Like, I think the first time I saw you was in one of those, like someone's living room somewhere in East Van in one of those, like salons. Oh, wow. Yeah. All yeah
0: maybe it was like Mark Berube or something totally. like that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man.
1: Yeah. Like,
0: yeah. A, like 20 years ago or something. It else.
1: was, I, when I did the math and I realized like that's, yeah, I felt old. But yeah. anyway, we won't talk about that. But, uh, <laughs> but I remember when I first saw you knowing this guy's got something really mm. big and really special. And I was so excited to see where it would take you and to see where you would, you know, so, so on the other side of it now, it's so cool to see all the things that you've done. Yeah.
0: That's yeah. so cool. I, I mean, it, it's I, anytime I hear something like that, um, I think about how I felt about my own art in those days, in those early days. And I was full of piss and vinegar and gumption and audacious and all, you know, but I didn't think I was very good at what I was doing. You know, I felt like I had a long way to go. And um, I recently ran into uh, a friend from the band, mother, mother in the airport. And they were talking about back in those days, they saw me play somewhere in and around that era and they had the same feeling of like, oh, this guy's going to be big or something like that. And it's such an interesting cognitive disconnect between at the time I probably put my guitar down and went like, oh God, that sucked, you know? And, um, and I think that that's kind of what you're alluding to with this whole podcast in general is like that, that imposter syndrome, that feeling of like, it's nowhere. I'm not succeeding at communicating my, what I'm trying to is kind of at the heart of the glitch of society in general. Um, and that feeling of like, it's not for me or I'm not doing this right. Or, you know, uh, uh it's not for me to do right.
1: Yeah. Or how me, why would it have picked me? Like, mm-hmm. I'm just me. Like, we're, do you remember the first time when you were, when you were maybe a small kid when music kind of grabbed you?
0: Oh yeah. Um, yeah my uh so we lived like deep in the country for i was i kind of lived all over as a kid but there was a period of time that we lived in in the like deep rural ontario and i had two older siblings and then i had three older step siblings so i was the youngest of six for a while total brady bunch situation and um and so everybody was full of music and culture and opinions and thoughts and records and Remember like Columbia House orders would arrive, you know, and it would just be like somebody ordered 10 CDs, like, let's go. And uh, and so I got really deep into CanCon. My sister was like a huge Sarah McLaughlin fan and Tragically Hip and 5440 and um all those bands back in the 80s. But then like the first CD I bought with my own money was like Aerosmith Get a Grip. Um And at the same time that we were getting into all that popular music, my stepbrother was teaching us how to play piano and guitar. And so I got really into the Beatles. And I remember sitting at the piano and playing Side B of Abbey Road from beginning to end. And that's, I don't know if you know Abbey Road well, but that's like a 22-minute journey of music that just wanders song to song. never stops. And um, I learned it all, how to play it all on the piano um, and I was maybe like nine or 10 years old and, um, just like feeling like I had a comp, like I had, I had a goal and I accomplished it and just knowing like, oh, like this is how everyone makes music. They just press the things and it makes the sound and, you know, anyone can do this. Cause I just learned how to do it in like in a few months or whatever, you know? And, um, and then I also have memories of, as a kid, you know, uh, I'm not, I'm not a church goer now, but my mom was a minister when I was a kid. And I, um, I remember singing with like candles, like Christmas Eve, all the lights off, everyone holding a candle, singing silent night or something like that. And, um, though I haven't taken with me any of the dogma or negative stuff about my, what I perceive as negative stuff about Christianity, um, I have taken with me that sense of collectivism and sort of like whole greater than the sum of the parts and, that feeling of connectedness. Um, And I think that probably I've kind of imbued that same intention into concerts for sure is to try and how can we break down all the walls in between us and make us just all feel like we're here together as a bunch of humans. And something you said earlier, you know, reminded me of something that I've, I've come up with in recent years, which is I believe that it is the artist's job to put their armor down first um, and then in doing so and demonstrating that and uh, in, in sort of like um, uh, doing it publicly, you put your armor away and you show your vulnerable self and everyone in the room goes, ah, man, I, I want to do that. You know, and it's it's it gives permission to everyone in the room to also be vulnerable, to let go of their inhibitions, to be the present, um, to maybe whatever, like plant a garden or quit their job or climb a mountain, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and you know, like the, the fear is when you put your armor down is that you're going to get pierced by arrows and swords. And when you don't, it's really emboldening. It makes you feel invincible. You're like, Oh my God, like that was like a drug. And, uh, the more that, you know, the more you're surrounded by art, the more you're surrounded by people who were willing to, to go and be vulnerable first. And it, it makes you feel like you can do it too. And, um, so I think that that's the artist's job. Um, and the truth is that they're not the only people who can do it. They're just the people who have the muscle memory and the training and the, you know, as Malcolm Gladwell will put it, 10,000 hours of trying something and, and failing and getting better. Um, so they're just more used to it in a way. You know, it's less foreign.
1: Well, and we're also creating something that is kind of tangible in a way, whether it is music or a piece of art, mm. or like it is something that that people can look at and point to and say, "Oh, look, there's right. there's <clears> the <throat> product of that vulnerability that's really pleasing and that actually serves my heart." So, <clears> what do I have in me that I can give and serve? And totally. I did want to ask you about that, about live performances and what what is going. I'm a total introvert. Like, I if I have an option to go to a concert or listen at home. Mostly I'm going to choose to live at home because I just Mm. like, I like to be at home. The pandemic
0: goes great for you.
1: Yeah. Oh, I'm coming to terms with coming out of it.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's
1: the trauma for me. Mm. But I wanted to ask you, what is happening to people like physiologically Mm. in those, in a big room like that? Like I've heard artists talk about you go into this place with your audience, you go into this, it's almost like this collective experience and it's different every time and you can feel when it's coming. And what what do you think is happening?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think like literally what is happening in terms of like energy waves is that sound, is like traveling through your body and then it's reverberating in your organs. Uh, and then it's continuing to move through you into other people and it's doing the same thing to them. So there is this sort of like united experience just in like energy form and that like the same sound waves that are moving through me are moving through you. Um, and so there's that. Um, if you add another layer, it's toward the end of my shows, I like to get people to sing along, not just like sing along to the song, but like sometimes I will I will make the the crowd become a choir and actually become the foundation of the song. Um, and then I'll sing something like to like counterpoint to what they're doing. In that case, what you have are people largely who are like, oh, I can't sing, or I'm not a singer or something like that. But as we all sing, or as more and more of us sing outwardly, what happens is that there's sort of like this group meld and we start to tune to each other. So magically people who, if left to their own devices might sing out of tune, all of a sudden find themselves singing perfectly in tune because they're surrounded by those vibrations. So, you know, all you have to do is just get on board. You don't, you don't have to start the train. You could just like ride it because other people are doing it for you. And that causes this positive feedback loop where, Oh, I'm not, I don't, I don't really think of myself as a singer, but boy, that it felt good to sing a little bit. And I think I'm singing really well. I think I'm singing in tune. I'm going to sing louder. And so everyone starts doing it and everyone starts doing it louder and more beautifully and more in tune. And then you get that whole greater than the sum of the parts. You reach that sort of like spiritual level where, you know, if nothing else when the song is over, you're like, Oh my God. Like I was out of my body and not thinking about bullshit in my life for like 25 seconds. You know, I was unconscious. And if you think about consciousness and unconsciousness, it's not, um, it's not like a like a ruler. There's no end and start. It's a circle. So like pure consciousness is the same thing as pure unconsciousness. If that makes sense, right? Like like you get so in the moment, so lost, so uh, uh, you know, aside from your ego and aside from your internal thought processes, that even though you're awake, you know, you are unconscious. It's like when you're a kid. And you go to some barbecue and it's all of a sudden it's 10 p.m. And you're like, oh, man, what happened to the last five hours? I was just running around in the yard, you know. Um, It's that beautiful thing where time passes and you, you I don't know.
1: Well, you were there, but you weren't really there. I've had that moment. You know, we've all had that moment in a million different ways. You know, you get to your destination, you're like, who just drove here? Yeah. I was totally lost in a trance of you know thinking about my next painting or writing a song or doing whatever it was in your head. And You're like, oh god, I'm glad I didn't crash the car. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> You're,
0: yeah, you're yeah. there,
1: but you're you're there, but you're not you're not really there.
0: Well, and and afterwards you feel great. It's like it's the same reason why if someone if you watch a performance and it makes you cry, you you it elicits like a physical experience. And then let's say after the song where you were crying the performer cuts a really funny joke to, to ease the tension and then you laugh. And now you've laughed and cried within the experience of a couple minutes. And both laughing and crying are like physical embodiments of slight unconsciousness. You know, it's like you're just so in it that your body is like going like, this is so crazy that I have to make tears now, you know, or this is so crazy that I need to convulse in laughter. And that's why many great films or great performances will have that sort of like up and down in a way as an audience, you can kind of feel ragdolled by it. You're sort of like, Whoa, I was, I was so heavy and I was kind of crying and it was big and intense. And then five minutes later you had me busting a gut. And when you leave the theater, you're like lighter than air. You're like, Oh, like, God, I just want to, you know, bake a cake and call my mom and, you know, make out with that, person over there or whatever like you're just like you just feel like despite all of the other uh, evidence otherwise that you know the pros of existence do outweigh the cons and you needed that levity that moment of unconsciousness to sort of remind you of how powerful it can feel to be alive and then you can go back to unloading the dishwasher and going to the bank and worrying about money and worrying about your kids safety or whatever it is but Without that sort of like stop at the gas station to fill up your tank, it's, you know, it's really easy to start running on empty.
1: It's a big thing to have the power to take people on that kind of journey. Like that's a, that's a, I, I was listening to Jerry Seinfeld and David Letterman talking the other day about talent and hmm. how, you know, managing your gift. And Jerry Seinfeld was saying it's like having, it's like having a wild stallion. <laughs> and if you don't know how to, work with it or master it really and can sort of direct it, it's, it can just, you know, walk all over the industry. Yeah. So, I mean, you have this thing in you. When did you realize you had it and how did you, like the first time you were at a show and people started singing your songs back to you, do you remember mm. the first time that happened? Yeah. Know, like what was going through your mind when and how you?
0: Well, I, and I think, I think that realizing that I was able to sort of conduct a crowd, Part, I mean, in order to do that, you have to have some audacity. Like, you, you have to have a large enough ego to believe that you deserve their attention, you know, in the first place. So it's, it's not an egoless practice. But um, I'll say this. I've never been or felt like much of a musician or like a talented musician. I think that I've been surrounded by so many people with just otherworldly talent that I have realized that, you know, me, like the musical talent, and, and I, when I say that, I mean like the ability to like shred on a fretboard or, you know, like play an instrument really incredibly well. I'm Nobody should hire me to play instrument, like guitar or piano on their album, right? Like it's just, that's not my gift. Um, and I realized fairly early on that that wasn't my gift, that like I just wasn't one of those people who was like a natural musician. I had to work really hard. To get there and get competent. And, and same with my voice. Like, if you heard me in those early days, like, I was like Tom Waits. Like, I was just yelling and it was really scratchy and like gravelly. And over time, I've sort of learned to use my voice in a way that I think is honed and getting better. But, but I did realize early on that I was good at connecting with groups of people, you know, despite the shortcomings that I had. And maybe because of them. Uh, Maybe if I was a better musician or a better singer, I would have leaned more heavily into that talent and tried to get my chops going and started to lean on that in order to carry the show. And because I couldn't lean on talent to carry the show, I had to lean on a different gift, uh, which was I, I had an easy time being vulnerable. I had an easy time getting on stage and sort of giving everything I had. Um and there were, there were, oh man, like there were follies along the way, right? Like there were, there were shows in those early days where I would literally go to get on stage thinking, like, I'm going to be kind of like this tonight. And like I, you know, I I would try and mirror or emulate my heroes or people that I thought were cool. Or, you know, you see someone perform like the week before at Cafe de Soleil, and you're like, oh, that person was so cool. I'm going to be like them. And then you kind of act. And then you get off stage and you're like, oh, that was bullshit. Like, God, that sucked and didn't feel connected to anyone because the whole time I was like hiding behind this veil. <clears throat> and the truth is that anytime you do that, like anytime you, you are disingenuous or, or dishonest in your performance, it's a lose-lose because either it doesn't work and nobody likes you or almost worse, it does like and people think you're great. But because you knew that it wasn't real, you think those people are idiots, you know, and you and you you so it's like you you fooled them, and you know that you are that they're fools, and you also know that you weren't being authentic, and that's what fooled them and it's like this terrible cesspool of like in your now it's just you have to deal with that in your mind, and so what I found was that the more I got on stage and like was literally just the same person on stage as I was before I got on the stage like the more I could just be a regular dude on stage with a minimal amount of smoke and mirrors minimal amount of presumption or pedestaling then I could relax then I could be myself then I could be spontaneous then I could be funny then I could you know uh, relax my shoulders and sink into a note better and I wasn't spending the whole time going, do they think I'm cool? Do they think this is good? I was spending the whole time going, this is hilarious. What a crazy, absurd thing I'm doing. This is amazing. And look, that person over there, they're singing along and cool haircut. Wow. You know, like it's just you, you can kind of rather than being this, um, like loudspeaker that is just broadcasting, you can be like a reflexive. Like you basically, you, instead of being a loudspeaker, you become like a massive ear. And all you are doing is listening and watching and observing and letting that play through every little note. Um, and so I, I started to look for ways that I could break the ice um, as early as possible and just like shed the presumption of, of what a show was. I remember getting on stage in Paris years ago um, and Paris is so cool, you know, it's such a cool town and people who live there are cool and kind of stand with their arms crossed in the venue and they're like observing you and wondering if you're cool or not. And and so I get really um, sort of self-conscious in those cities or in those situations. And I was like, I've just never been very cool. And um, as I was getting on stage, I kind of tripped over this guitar stand that was on the stage. And there was this sort of like, audible sort of like ha, 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 you know and i was like oh great and then i lifted my foot and the guitar stand was stuck to my foot and it was like now i was like it was like moving and and then there was like an a, a much more audible sort of like roar of laughter and i remember looking my foot and just laughing and then i realized this gig's going to be amazing like it was it, it was it was like the first thing that happened as i got on stage was nuked any sense of like you know um I don't know what the word is, but like
1: pretense,
0: yeah, like spectacle, or or, or and um, and the truth is that that's what works for me. That's not what works for Tom York. Tom York thrives behind the veil. He is a smoke and mirrors kind of guy. You kind of know him, but you don't really know him. Um, but he's so unbelievably good that you forgive him for that, and you just want to be taken away on a dream, you know, and so very 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 different kind of artist and i just realized that my strength was like to be an anti-star like i like like to be on stage as as non rock starry as possible uh, was how i could give the best performance and how i could feel the best afterwards and feel connected and feel raw and feel spontaneous and honest about the whole thing Um, and i've i've always reeled against that word rock star like I feel like it sort of describes everything about the lifestyle or the perceived lifestyle and nothing about the work. It's like rockstar says nothing about how hard it was to write that song or how many thousands of shows you played to get good. It says only about the like, you know, being in a VIP room or something like that, you know, or being treated special because you're, you're famous. Um, and that's, Bullshit. Like <laughs> that, that stuff sucks. Anyone who likes that and like really lives in, like those people are not the people I really want to be around, you know?
1: Yeah. So it makes perfect sense that you, you would just be you when you're in that space.
0: Yeah. And it, it's like a cliche, right? Like, oh, just be yourself. But you know, truly cliches are built on some modicum of truth, you know? And, um, and it's also like, it's hard, it's, it's hard to quote unquote, be yourself all the time. Um, because we're, we're humans, we're fallible and we're anxious and we're in our heads and we're worrying about things. Um, and so learning how to do that on stage is the same learning process as like learning how to play piano. Like it's, it's a muscle that you have to strengthen intentionally and put a lot of philosophical energy into
1: And when, and realizing that when you, that part of that process is going to be failure or embarrassment or bombing or or like, it's all part of the way to get there.
0: Big time. Yeah.
1: This episode of Creative Genius is brought to you by Morning Moon Nature Jewelry. Instantly familiar, yet unlike anything you've ever owned. This extraordinary handcrafted heirloom jewelry is famous for its incredible detail of actual textures from nature. Get 15% off your first order and feel the wonder. Use coupon code CREATIVE GENIUS at lovemorningmoon.com.
0: You know, I think there's so many like motivational speakers who would talk about how failure is so such a key part of success. Um, but it is absolutely true. Like I've made so many mistakes, I've done so many dumb things um and in hindsight you're always like what the fuck was i thinking you know um but you ha- you really do have to go there to come back and if i think about my lowest points as a human or artist the times when i questioned my career the most and really questioned if i had anything left or anything worthy to give to the world um those moments sucked and like there was no fast forward Through them, there was no shortcut. It's like grieving. Every time someone close to you dies, you have to go through it again. And even if you can cerebralize it and you're smart enough to know, okay, well, this is what it's going to feel like. And then this is what's going to, you can, you can, like, no amount of knowledge makes it less hard. And you have to go through that whole process each and every time someone close to you passes. And it's the same thing with the hardest lessons in life and, you know, the darker. The darker the sort of like low moments are, in a way, the more you appreciate any of the up moments. And it helps you stay in um, gratitude mode, really. like I've had times in my career where I felt like I was kind of on top of the world and you start to take things for granted, start to take people showing up for granted, start to take people offering you gigs for granted. Um, And I've also had times in my career where the phone was not ringing. And you're like, uh, guys, hey, world, I'm still here, you know? And um, and on the other side of it now, like, you know, luckily I've, I was sort of able to write the ship. And I feel like there's like a good mojo in my career. But um, I appreciate it now more than ever. Like, you know, when you, when you get into the green room and there's like a tray full of food there, somebody had to put that together. Somebody had to go and pick this up. Somebody had to, you know, trim this edges off the broccoli or something like that you know and um and to really truly appreciate that and acknowledge it and not take it for granted you kind of have to kind of have to have experienced being a a, like a dick and then going wait a minute that wasn't right i don't want to be like the (laughs) burn
1: of that feeling yeah because that feeling does burn
0: it does yeah especially if you realize i remember as like a teenager being in some scenario where like i was kind of feeling cocky and Like I was, you know, I was a cool dude and, um, some, I can't even remember exactly what it was, but like some social situation where I thought I was just sort of like hanging with a bunch of people and it was, they kind of just like walked away. And I remember being like, oh, wait a minute. Like how, wait, okay, hold on. (laughs) Let me assess the situation. And then thinking, yeah. And then thinking, oh, wait a minute. And I was like thinking about all the things I had just been saying. And then I was like, wait, if I heard someone else say that, I would think that they were a total douchebag. But I was the one saying them, okay, well, that, that's a learning moment. Mm-hmm.
1: So I'm trying to imagine, so you've, you've, you've grown up in this really musical family. You feel supported, like pretty supported by your family to pursue this life. If no one's saying to you, hey, <coughs> go be an accountant. That's going to be a safer well. for you. <laughs> oh, okay. That was a little projection on my part.
0: Um, but my mom was on board from, from the get-go. She was like, do what you, you be you, you do whatever you want to do. Um, my dad took some more time. My dad is at this point in my life, you know, huge supporter and fan and like sends me things that he finds on Googling Me and stuff like that. Um, but uh no, there was there was about five years of hustle in there where he'd be like, Well, you know, my dentist's son is a drummer and I just was at the dentist and he was saying that he's still broke and it's he's like 35. And I was like, Dad, I might be broke my whole life. But that's that's gonna. I'm just gonna have to be okay with that. That's like part of part of the deal here, you know. Well, no, he he saw that I was working hard, and that's that was the difference. Like in even in those early days, I you have to kind of it's a bit church and state, the art and the business. You have to kind of try and work them as different beasts, but there is a lot of overlap. And I figured, okay, well, I'm going to work as hard as I can. I'm writing the best songs possible, and. When it comes to the other side of things, I'm going to pretend that I opened a coffee shop. If I opened a coffee shop, I would think about the awning, I think about the sandwich board, what kind of seats are in there, where do the baked goods come from, uh, where does the coffee come from, who am I hiring, what's the font on the menu, what are the prices? you know, And I would probably spend like 16 hours a day in that coffee shop for at least the first couple of years until it was off the ground and so I applied that same mentality to music and I figured okay well I'm working nights I was working at the keg on Granville Island and um you know maybe we crossed paths back there when you were selling your goods it probably 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 did and uh, that's where I met my wife we were serving tables together um but I remember thinking okay well so my nights are working but then I have like between you know Let's be honest, uh, like 10 or 11 a.m. when I woke up to, uh, you know, four o'clock when I had to go to work every day to work on other things. So, you know, I didn't know how to make a website. So I, and I couldn't afford to pay anyone else to do it. So I learned how to make a website and I needed like a bio one sheet and I didn't know how to use Photoshop. So I my, taught myself how to use Photoshop and I just like, I figured that all of these skills that I couldn't afford to hire. Anyone else to do, I could do like a crummy job of it until the point that I could hire someone else to do it. And um, it was really great because, like, I booked tours for myself in Europe using MySpace. Like, I did all of these things off of just sheer like ambition and hunger and excitement and naivety and optimism that later on, when I started working with agents and working with managers and publicists, it's like, i had been my own publicist, so I knew if they were doing a good job, you know, and I could hold their feet to the fire. And um, it's been interesting in that, like, I, I've spoken at a lot of panels at music conferences and stuff like that. And young bands, they, they will ask things like, how do I get a manager or how do I get an agent? And that's sort of like saying, how do I get a wife? You know, like, (laughs) you know, like you wouldn't walk down the street and go like, anybody want to marry me? No, like you would go and be in the world and do everything you could to attract that kind of attention or that kind of, you know, um, attraction. And and then you some hope that at one point somebody thinks you're great and you think they're great. And that's awesome. And it's the same thing. You have to remember those early days thinking like, it's like I'm on a train and I got the train has stopped at the platform and I'm just waiting for everyone to get on the train because once they're on the train, oh man, like I'm going to play the best song ever and they're going to love me and it's all going to happen. I'm going to get discovered. Um, and so there's this sense of like waiting or something like that. Like I just wrote my best song ever, but like, I don't want to put it out yet because I don't have a big enough audience right. or something, you know? Right. And, uh, and it's garbage. Like you just, you just gotta do it and then write something better, you know? And that sense of like waiting is just, it's like atrophy. And the truth is that what you need to do, like let's say there's only two people on your train, get that train moving. Like you want the train moving and the faster it goes and the the more exciting it gets, um, eventually there will be people at the next station waiting to jump on as it flies by. And you need that kind of momentum and that kind of excitement around what you're doing in order to attract any attention in this like incredibly oversaturated world of art um it's so hard to get anyone's attention and it's so hard to keep their attention and so what you have to do is not worry about specifically holding anyone's attention but just being this like ongoing vessel of excitement so that they come to you and it's the same you know that was how i found my manager. And I ended up working with arts and crafts, who was my favorite label in Canada. And they were broken social scene and Feist and all these people, Jason Collette that I looked up to and I idolized. And I, you know, I, I didn't go to them. Uh, they came to me because I had been just like hustling my ass off trying to build something in my little corner of the world.
1: So what was that like when you, so you're working really hard, you're, you're booking all your own tours, you're doing, you're doing all this stuff yourself. And then then the like that stuff starts showing up, and the awards start showing up. You know, you, you've won a couple Junos, you've won the Polaris Music Prizes. You've bigger and bigger opportunities started happening. You were you scored feature film. You've worked with Netflix. I mean, these are not things that you're now. You're not. This is not DIY <laughs> yeah, stuff yeah, now. Like, yeah. what's what's going? What's it like to be in your shoes when that <clears throat> stuff starts to happen?
0: Well, I remember um, when we had sold out the Orpheum here in town, which is like, I mean, come on, it's like a dream come true, right? You know, it's like incredible opera house. And before the show, we were at the sushi restaurant across the street and I had the checkbook out and I'd hired like a 10 piece band of like, or strings and horns and everything. And I'm there in the sushi restaurant. I can't enjoy my dinner because I'm sitting there trying to write checks for everybody. And then afterwards, like people are like, oh, what was it like? He, you know, and I was like, you know what? It felt like another show, and um, because at that point we'd done thousands of them, and the, it, like, at the moment that you achieve something that your whole life seemed fantastical or mythical or surreal, like imagine selling out the Orpheum. By the time that type of thing happens, in actuality. In the imperfect world that we live in, um, it doesn't feel like a dream. It doesn't feel like a fantasy. Um, it feels very real, and it feels like it's laden with all of the hiccups and warts that real life is full of. And um, in a way, that's beautiful too. You know, like um, you have moments, hopefully, on stage where you kind of transcend your physical form and get into that sort of spiritual place of uh, you know that we were talking about earlier of forgetting yourself. That's that's the goal. But, uh, in and around it all, you know, it's very human. And, um, it's funny, like winning Junos was, was an interesting one because the Junos is a huge, and any awards show, even Polaris, which claims to be only about artistic merit. But let's be honest, claiming to be about artistic merit is like, it's its own fashion show. It's its own pop culture thing. It's its own, uh, you know, sort of like a cool party or something like that. And, uh, so I've been listed for Polaris and I, and I have won Juno awards. And the funny thing is that when you're in the room and they're announcing awards, I mean, tons of people are winning that you and your subjective mind don't think that they were better than the other nominee. You're like, oh, so-and-so should have won or whatever. And the way that I can rationalize it all, because when you're, when you're entering that arena where it's like, they're going to call someone's name, I hope it's mine. Um, it's like, It's the ultimate test of like, can you existentially clock your self-worth from an internal compass or are you seeking that external affirmation? And the way that I've been able to sort of compartmentalize that experience in my brain and still sleep at night is that these award shows are not about the art whatsoever. They're not about the songs you wrote. They're not about the album. They are connected to, but that's not what it's about. They're about you as a person and your peers and colleagues and people that admire you are patting you on the back saying, good job, we support you. We're excited about what you're doing and you have the momentum right now to achieve this award. And so it's like, you put your heart and soul into the art, into the work. The work is not what's being judged. What's being judged is the trajectory of your career, basically. Um, and so, in doing so, if you win or don't win, you know, sure, maybe this other person had more momentum coming into the Junos and got more votes or whatever. Um, but then, it, but then you're not going, oh, it's not because the album wasn't as good as XYZ or whatever. Um, and so, the other thing I'll say about Junos and awards is that it's complete and utter bullshit. But when they call your name, it feels incredible and the whole rest of the weekend everyone's patting you on the back going oh good for you you really deserved it we're rooting for you congratulations and that sort of like cloud nine like oh my god i'm the anointed one for this moment in time you would have to be a psychopath to not indulge that and enjoy that a little bit um or you'd have to be like the Dalai Lama, and be, or I, don't know, you know what I mean, like you'd have to just be so on another level. And I would never claim to be that way. So it's um, it's hard because it is you can't judge yourself based on it, and you can't like evaluate yourself based on the outcome of it. Uh, and you, but you still have to appreciate it in the same way that you appreciate, you know, the, those broccoli and that watermelon being cut for you in the green room, because if you snub it and say this is utter bullshit and i don't want anything to do with this that's not really good either that's still an ego play you know it's like it's still a, i'm too good for this
1: you're up here on the pedestal or you're down here in the pit and meanwhile neither one of those things is ever really completely true
0: exactly and you, and just taking the victories even the little victories that come along and being excited about that well, well it's better for your mind like selfishly it's better for you and your ability to sleep at night
1: yeah but there must be something about when you get to work with and meet uh, you people who you've admired for such a long time who maybe did feel like they were in this other, I know we, we all do that. Like we're always putting people on a pedestal, right? But, but here you are now. You're working with them and you're like having these opportunities. That's different than winning awards. That's like, now you're, you're in that, mm-hmm. in that kind of part of the, where creativity is flowing really fast. And
0: well, yeah. And, and the other, it's like, in that in that way, like you know, seeing a broken social scene or feist explode, and they were tied to the arts and crafts, and then you start like in your mind, you're like, oh, it's because of arts and crafts. That's why it. Ex-. No, they exploded because both of those bands were complete rocket ships of talent and drive and zeitgeist, luck, and just right place, right time, perfect storm, explosion. And there's no silver bullet. And as soon as you start working with your dream company, like if you're a publisher and you start working with like HarperCollins or something like that, you know, you're gonna see very, very quickly that like um there are imperfections in every institution and every organization has, you know, will fall short in certain ways. And it's because they're run by humans and humans are completely rife with, you know, faults. Um, but I have had like I just posted a story on TikTok the other day about um meeting Paul, Paul McCartney. I'm
1: so glad. I was going to ask you to tell this story. <laughs> tell well, us the story.
0: Yeah, so I'll, I'll try and tell the short version. But uh, weirdly, after being broken into, like being robbed in, in Los Angeles and having this crazy experience, and then going to the studio the next morning after spending the whole morning with like the LLAPD and wandering the streets, looking for my bags and my passport in it and all this stuff, and going to the Canadian consulate so that I could get a passport in time for my flight home and all that and so I get to the studio and we're there. We we take one take of one, the first song that we're doing. We're listening back. And then Paul McCartney kind of pops his head in the door and goes, oh, sorry. And, um, and they, you know, somebody I was with kind of knew him a little bit and they chased him down. I mean, he hung out for like 20 minutes and then I went out to get a coffee an hour later. And then I ran into him uh, at the doorway of the studio and he was like, oh, it's you. I was thinking about your song. And, um. And so, and he's had like these thoughts about the song that we played for him. And I'm like, this is just like insane because, <laughs> like, here's Paul McCartney giving me his two cents on the song. Like, it's funny, you know, like I can, I know a hundred of your songs word for word, you know, like, and now he's heard one of mine. Um, and I'm sure he forgot it shortly thereafter and forgot my name and everything. But it was, this moment where you're like, I, I treat those moments like an omen. You're like, I'm, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Like if I am, if I am in the same studio where that kind of happenstance could occur, that's positively reinforcing for me that like I am fulfilling my mission. You know, I'm, 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 I'm out there in the world doing the thing that I love and placing myself in the crosshairs of opportunity. And um and that's really exciting. And you know, meeting him is like one of the coolest things that's ever happened to me. And I've got other stories, like I've got Snoop Dogg stories and Willie Nelson stories and all kinds of stuff. Um and
1: favorite one.
0: Well, it's probably Palmer. I mean, although like, you know, watching Snoop Dogg and Willie Nelson share a vaporizer on Willie's tour bus at Glastonbury is like, you know, like that was that was pretty special. But again. You know, like, I don't like the idea that this is all in the past tense. Like, I, I don't want my best work to be behind me. I want, um, I, I always want to be better. Like, I always want to be a better songwriter and a better musician and a better singer and a better performer. And I can say with like complete, uh, you know, biased certainty that this new record, which, uh, you know, we're unrolling this year. It's the best. I think it's the best writing, the best songs, the best thing I've ever done. Um, and I feel like despite the fact that I'm a 39 year old, you know, cisgendered hetero white dude, boring as can be with two kids, you know, in today's zeitgeist, I'm the last person anybody wants to hear from. But I think I got some things to say and I think they're great. So
1: hard on yourself. I, you know, I think about, I was reading an article the other day about people have tattooed your lyrics on their body <laughs> people more than want to hear what you have to say you're reaching them i have to tell you i was listening to uh it was basket the other day i had to pull over oh. i've heard that song a thousand times i don't know why but i i literally was sobbing like i was just oh, how man. could anybody listen to that song with like it was it got deep into my heart and i of course people want to hear what you have to say. And I feel yeah. like, I just want to reflect this back to you. You're so present. Like, I think you're so willing to, f- you're willing to fail. You're willing to really be yourself. You're, you've kind of worked through, I think, a lot of the bullshit around like pretense and trying to be something mm. that you're not. And <laughs> how could you not have the best work come through you now? You've refined your channel so much. Right. Feel- oh,
0: that's so, so cool of you to say. Thank you. That's really, really, really sweet, and um, I do feel that way. Like I'm in the best physical health of my life. Um, I I feel like mentally, like I, I, you know, when I was young, I never like meditated or did anything to sort of feed my mind. Um, I, I'm reading good books. I'm just like I'm in a good place with my kids and my family, and and with music and songs. And um, I feel like I'm maybe better suited now. To deliver whatever my message is, than I ever was uh, when I was young and standing on bar tops and screaming my head off, and you know I was I was a good ringleader, um, but I think I'm more sound as any kind of artist now than I than I was then. It's yeah. You know, it, the other important thing to remember is. It's, i'm very thankful for basket so i'll brace myself against the wall and hope to god that i don't fall my bones are worn my hip won't hold i used to be so young how did i get so old won't you take my cane and hold my a basket full of memories and I'm losing more each day it seems but if I can make it to the street I'll steal a car or a bike, whatever there is to steal and it might get cold, I just don't care, I'm going till I'm getting there, I'll ride my steel. I wrote it in my hour on a bus ride from ubc my 99b headed out to ubc when i was going to classes there my grandfather just passed away and um and i to me that song is like this gift that just keeps giving like you know it gets requested every show i play it every show i enjoy playing it every night um it hasn't gotten old to me but there is still an element of it that's like it doesn't feel otherworldly. It feels like very, oh, this version of it this night is different than this version of that night. Or And when I hear stories, because and particularly with that song, people, I can't listen to that song without crying. What's important is for me to step out of myself and step out of my perspective and think about, okay, well, hold on. What songs of other people's make me cry? And what does that feel like? Oh, man, that feels heavy. And and dark and beautiful and light and all of the things, and when I I remember like one time listening to the song um, "Select All Delete" by John K. Samson. Do you know that song? I was on a ferry. And I was really anxious and really having a hard time. And I just listened to that song. And I, I didn't bawl my eyes. I just had like a little weepy moment. And I was thinking like oh, I'm so grateful for this song right now because it really saved me. It was like a life raft, you know. And so if I can picture what that means for me, other people's work. And then flip that around and think that maybe some of my songs do that for other people. There's no better fruition. That is it. Like that is, that is like, put that on my tombstone. Like uh, that's the best thing I could have ever hoped for because you, you have this, you send off your smoke signal, right? And you say, I don't know if you guys feel, but this is how I feel. And you send that up into the air and then like 10,000 miles away, somebody sees that smoke signal And they go, oh, my God, that's exactly how I feel. I've never heard it articulated just like you did, but God, I feel the same way. I'm with you, man. And even if you never meet, like, cosmically, you are both less alone for having had that experience together, you know?
1: I absolutely know, and I wish I could—I wish I could— just transmit to you how uh, I know that if your music has affected me this way, and I mean, I've been under a rock for the last 10 years and I'm raising my kids and I haven't even, I, I turned on so much for everyone the other day. Again, I was on the highway. I shouldn't listen to you when I'm driving. <laughs>
0: yeah, dangerous, car. dangerous.
1: <laughs> but I was transported back. I used, to in, I used to live in this old house at Main and 16th with my dog, Lucy. And, you know, I had lots of free time and I listened to music, went to shows. And, and that brought me back to those mm. moments with that,
0: it's like uh, it's like uh, it's like I, there, I, there's a certain smell that takes me back to my like my, the the hallway in my grandmother's apartment, you know, in that old apartment building at like Oak and Thirteenth or whatever. And it music is is kind of like that. It's like an odor. It's like something that can like transport you. When I hear the song "The, the Tourist" by Radiohead, I'm immediately like sixteen big headphones on, CD player in my hand, like holding it just flat so it doesn't skip, like head against the window pane of the transit bus, rain coming down, it's nighttime. Like those experiences where the music and you are fused and you are one, just like we were talking about at a concert, you're unconscious. You know, you get to that ethereal place. And it is like the most beautiful irony that when, when existing, Almost the, the most exciting thing you can do is be unconscious. Like, like, like being like a, on a massage table or something, just getting like the best massage or, you know, at a concert getting like nailed and dancing, like whatever it is. Um, It's, it's, it's hilarious that the best thing about being alive is being halfway to not existing you know
1: well I, but i think that's what the great sages have been trying to point us to since the beginning of time is that that that's just presence mm-hmm. you're just you're just fully in the moment you're not in your mind you're not in the next <laughs> moment you're not in the last moment you're in
0: and it's important to note that like when i'm when i'm on stage and, and i've had people say to me oh you're such a you're a very present performer um and i i, I I just wouldn't want anyone to think disingenuously that I I operate moment to moment through my life with that level of like, you know, like it's just not, nobody can. And I, and and the thing that made me capable of going to that place was feeling really normal and feeling really like unpedestaled. And, uh, and I guess that that's like the beautiful thing about consciousness, right? Is that it's a never ending ladder. Like there's no top to it. And no matter where you are on the, what, what, Whether you're on rung seven or rung 700 of the consciousness, when you look up, it just keeps going, you know, there's more. And there's always someone ahead of you and someone beneath you. And um, all you can do is focus on yourself and, you know, go take a cold plunge and, you know, get in the zone.
1: I have to ask you, my 10-year-old, I have a son named Cosmo who's 10, and both of my children have obviously memorized the words to robots. (laughs) but. They the and I thought they were going to ask me about the singer's stupid head off because they get to say the word stupid. Mm-hmm. But no, they wanted me to ask because I said I'm going to talk to Dan today. What are your, what are your I always ask and they're really interested in the podcast. And I said what What do you want me to ask him? And Cosmo said, "What does ring the bells that still can ring mean?"
0: Oh, cool. For a robot Boy. Ring the bells that still can ring and sing your stupid head off to the ones who are not listening. But I don't, I mean, I don't know if you're privy, but that is a direct quote from Leonard Cohen. So uh, his song. Um it says, ring the bells, the still can ring, there's cracks in everything. That's how the light gets in. Um beautiful, beautiful song. Uh I can't think of the title right now. But in in referencing him, and I do this in some of my songs, it's like a it's like a nod to him, but it's also sort of like a in, in referencing something that is commonplace, it doesn't have to be like a, a lyric of a song. It can be just like um, uh, I don't know what you've been told, right? That's the opening line of robots, and that's like a saying. Like I don't know what you've been told, kiddo. But um, and so when you infuse a song with something that's already part of like the colloquial like commons of of speech, like like a Leonard Cohen lyric is, you're sort of you're creating a sense of familiarity in and around what's going on already subconsciously um and so i do that a lot with my songs but that line in particular um i mean maybe this is just where my like atwoodian dystopian mind goes but it means despite whatever hardships or lack of opportunity or um lack of resources or whatever you can still ring the bells that still can ring no matter how many bells have been silenced by people who want to restrict let's say reproductive health in, in the states or whatever no matter wh- what silencing is going on you can still find the bells that will still ring and you can ring them and it's a it's like a call to arms it's like um you know, and the next line is sing your stupid head off to the ones who are not listening, which is in a, in a way saying the same thing, right? It's, it's saying, you know, you're still you. You can still be you and you can say your message and say it clearly. And, uh, and whatever, in, in whatever way is possible for you, use what you got when you got it to convey your message, basically. I think that's a very long story way of describing.
1: And I'm just looking at the time here. I'm reluctant to bring this conversation to a close because it's been so wonderful
0: to talk to you. I just saw a text from my wife saying she needs me to go get a watermelon for her audition that she's (laughs) self-taping. Perfect.
1: (laughs) Perfect perfect timing. Uh, Is there anything else that you want to say here before we go?
0: Um only that everybody uh should check out SidDooraAccess.com, which is uh, you know, my sort of non-musical but still musical uh project. Uh it's like Airbnb for shows where any space is a venue. So you can create a profile for your living room or your backyard or your bookstore or whatever, connect directly with artists and, and put on shows, uh and curate for your community um right where you are. It doesn't have to be right in the middle of the city. You can be anywhere and uh host shows and uh, help artists make a living and sort of contribute to uh, the great process of empathy mining through art.
1: Thank you for coming today.
0: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah. And thank you again for your music. I really feel like you are a little bit too hard on yourself. (laughs) What you're doing is fairly important. So thank you.
0: It's very kind. Very kind. I appreciate that. Well, thank you so much. Lovely to meet and, uh, or reconnect as the case may be and uh, much love. Have a, great, uh, have a great weekend.
1: If you're listening, Dan, thank you for making the time and for such a truly terrific conversation. I really enjoyed talking to you. I had so many aha moments, both in real time talking to you and then also later in editing. So thank you for everything you shared and for being so vulnerable and open and kind and all those wonderful things. And for everyone else, Dan has a brand new album coming out on October 28th it's called being somewhere and you can find out everything about it including where to go see him live and if he's playing in a city near you you really got to go see him live uh, and you can do all that on danmanganmusic.com so d a n m a n g a n music.com dan's ability to recognize his ego and figure out a way to use it in a way that serves his art and his audience and his capacity for genuinely being present in the moment both on stage and off stage are what make Dan so likable. He's an incredible songwriter and has a rare and beautiful ability to just be himself, be vulnerable and free, both on stage and off. You know, when you're listening to him singing, it's his soul you're hearing. That opens a door in your own heart. And that's why his fans around the world tattoo his lyrics on their bodies and faithfully come to his shows wherever he goes on tour. His music makes us cry and laugh and feel the wonder of being alive. You know, I I want to point out something to anybody who's listening to this, who knows that they have a gift inside and wants to give it to the world. Dan didn't just sit around and wait to be discovered. He set about methodically building his career and building a vehicle for his music. He didn't wait for some magical moment that was out of his control, but he made it happen with resourcefulness and passion and grit and drive. He never gave up. I mean, he was he built his own website and was his own agent when he didn't have somebody around to do those things for him until he did. Another really important lesson I think we can take from Dan is around learning to be ourselves. You know, he learned really early on that he needed to be himself on stage, that maybe smoke and mirrors would work for other performers. But for him, he always just felt really crappy any anytime he deviated from being Dan. And it's this willingness to be himself, to be vulnerable, that has allowed him to connect so deeply with crowds all over the world and explains why his fans are so dedicated to him. Truly, to be a Dan Mangan fan feels like he is already your friend, someone who feels the grit and grace of life and articulates in a way that something deep inside of you understands. And you can't get that by trying to be somebody that you're not. You know, his, his compulsion to fully step into himself and his gift and to tirelessly build this vehicle that would allow him to have the most reach for his gift ultimately is an act of service. You know, it lets him share his gifts, which inspires us, and it gives everybody listening permission to free themselves and to be reminded that the pros of existence really do outweigh the cons. I want to say a special thank you to Chloe and Bled over at Arts and Crafts who helped make this episode happen and to Arts and Crafts for allowing us to share some of Dan's music here with you today. Make sure you're signed up for my newsletter. I pick a random person from my email list once every month and send them an original piece of my artwork. It's one of my favorite things to do. It takes a lot to put together this show. Please consider supporting me to do it. You can visit patreon.com slash creativegeniuspodcast to find out more. And please keep my jewelry or paintings, and especially Gratitude Birds, which keep selling out, in mind next time you're looking for a treat for yourself or for a loved one. You can find everything I've mentioned on KateShepherdCreative.com. Thank you for being here, for opening your heart, and for listening. My wish and intention for this show is that it reach into your heart and stir the beautiful thing that lives in there. May you find and unleash your creative genius.